Thanks, Emma. Keep that passage open. Because we're going to have a look at it now. But as we begin, uh, I want you to turn to the person next to you and try and answer this question. Is humanity as a whole getting better or worse? I went to the optometrist recently and they keep flicking different lenses in front of your eyes. Better? Worse? Better? Worse? Your turn. Is humanity getting better or worse? And why? decided? Let's have a show of hands. This will be the second most important vote today. (laughs) Is humanity getting better? Is humanity getting worse? Oh, look at you pessimists. (laughs) Oh, good to know. I would have thought there might have been like one hand to say it's getting better. How about in terms of like healthcare? Humans live longer than they've ever lived except for in Genesis. In terms of health, things are looking pretty good for humans, but in terms of the environment, maybe not so good. It depends on where you look, doesn't it? Depends on what your measure of better or worse is. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning uh, that one of the biggest factors at play in humanity's successes and failures is how well we work together and what it is that unites us. Because when humans unite... We are capable of achieving some incredibly good things. Now, you saw this in the news just a few weeks ago. The rescue of those 50 female Afghan athletes from Kabul, that is an example of humans uniting to achieve something good. I don't know if you've read the story, but how many people it took working together. People here in Australia, people over in Afghanistan, even people in the UK, people from all over cooperating in this one united effort. It was good. But at the same time, that that very rescue comes to us in the context of humans uniting to achieve evil. The Taliban's rise to power is an example of humans working together, just with a different outcome. When humans work together, we're capable of doing incredible good and also abhorrent evil. And the difference is seen in what it is that brings us together. Well, this morning we're going to end our series in part one of Genesis. And the story that Emma just read for us is a story of humans united. It's a story of humans gathering together with a common language, working together, cooperating on a common task. It's a beautiful picture of human unity. Until we realise that they're united against God. Because beneath that healthy exterior of cooperation and unity lies a selfish pride which not only ignores God but actually actively opposes his rule. By this simple act of gathering together to build a city these people are actually making a coordinated attack to thwart God's plans for the world 
and to overthrow his right to rule. And the thing that I need you to see this morning, the thing that I need to see in this text this morning, is that this subtle selfishness and pride which lurks in the hearts of the residents of Babel is the same selfishness and pride that lurks in our own hearts. And it puts us in danger of uniting against God. Now, from the outside, it looks fine. But when we see things from God's perspective, as we're about to do, we'll see it is not fine. It is anything but. So I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask that God would actually expose our hearts so that we would see what he sees. But more than that, that he would actually show us what he has done to cure our pride and selfish hearts. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we can know you. Lord, please speak to us this morning. And please, by your spirit, would you implant your word deep in our hearts. Expose sin that we don't see. Expose our motivations. And Lord, help us see where we have fallen short of your expectations. But more than that, Lord, show us the hope that we can find in you. Show us your solution to our pride this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to stop that noise. I worked it out. Isn't it good? All right. Have a look in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 11. At first glance, it seems fairly innocuous, doesn't it? In fact, if you didn't see God's response to the activity of these would-be city builders, you would probably frame this story in a positive light. Think about it. It begins with a beautiful picture of unity and cooperation. Verse 1 says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Beautiful. Verse 2 tells us that a group of people found a nice place to live. Probably not quite as hard as it is here in Noosa, but still, all so far, so good. In verse 3, these people start to work together. And that's a rare thing for humans to do, isn't it? They cooperate. They make advances in technology through their cooperation. They discover the brick. It's a game changer. Construction will never be the same again. This new technology provides new opportunities. With baked clay bricks in hand, they get to work. They're going to build a city and a tower that reaches to the sky so that everyone might see their accomplishments. The Tower of Babel story is a story of human achievement, a story of human advancement. It shows what humans are capable of when they work together. It's something to be celebrated. It's the ancient Silicon Valley where humans work together to overcome limitations. It's the great Burj Khalifa, Babel's tower that is iconic. People will come to see it. You see, from a human point of view, this story is a story of success. It's humanity united, working together, cooperating like they should. To us, 
This looks like humanity at its best, but to God it is anything but. Because the thing that humans celebrate, well, it's something that God actually opposes. Because what we see here is all the nations on earth united, but united against God. Let's take a look, a closer look at the text and we'll see this. And the first hint of opposition in the lang- is the language that they use. Do you notice what the, what the people say? What it tells you about what they care about? Come, let us make bricks. Let us build ourselves a city so that we may make a name for ourselves. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Who matters most? We do. All their ambition, all their plans are 100% motivated by their desires. They do what they want. And that's what humans naturally do, don't they? You and I are the same. No one had to teach us to be selfish. It just comes naturally to us. Mine, mine, mine is one of the first things we learn. The problem with only ever doing what you want is that, well, you ignore the thoughts of others, but you also ignore what God thinks. And when you don't care what God thinks, well, you don't do what God says. That's exactly what happens to the residents of Babel here. Because back in chapter 9, God called Noah out of the ark and he gave him the same command that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. We saw this last week, didn't we? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God's desire for humans, his plan was for them to fill the earth, to spread out, to exercise dominion over all of it. And the genealogy, which I mercifully asked Emma not to read in chapter 10, tells us of how that happened. If you actually flick back to chapter 10, you will notice it's a table of nations. It's it's a record of all the descendants of Noah, and it talks about where they spread over the earth. Three times in chapter 10, we hear that repeated. In verse 5 of chapter 10, the people spread out into their territories by their clans. In verse 18, the Canaanite clans scattered and summed up in the very last verse of chapter 10. From these descendants of Noah, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. God's will for his people at that time was for them to spread to fill the earth. But when we get to the verse 1 of chapter 11, we read that these people found a place in Shinar and settled there. And at the end of verse 4, we learn that the reason that they built a city was to prevent being scattered over the face of the whole earth. God's will for them was for them to spread, but that's not what they wanted. And so they didn't. They settled. They disobeyed. They decided that God's plan for the world could take a back seat to their own plan. So it's worth asking yourself, how much do God's plans for his world impact your plans? So often we make decisions about our own lives based on what 
matters to us. What matters to our wife or our husband? What matters to our children? What matters to our parents? How often do you consider what matters to God in your day-to-day decisions? Because friends, if God is God, if he is the one who rules this world, well then his plans for the world should be the primary motivation in deciding what we do. His plans for the world should impact everything that we do. From the little decisions we make each day to the big ones of where we live and what we do with our time. Are you letting God's plans for this world impact yours? Well, the residents of Babel are selfish and it leads to them disobeying God's will. But their opposition to God is more than just that. It's not just that they've broken a command of God's. Because these people aren't content to simply do what they want. They want to be recognised for what they do. Did you see what was the purpose for them building a tower? They want to build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that they can make a name for themselves. See, they want fame. They want recognition. They want glory. They want praise. They want to be known for their achievements. They want people to come and marvel at their work. A few years back, I received a letter in the post. And inside that envelope was a certificate. It was an award honouring my achievements, recognising my contributions. The National Australia Bank had awarded me lifetime membership to the Philip Stolk Appreciation Society. (laughs) I am not joking. I took a photo of that to treasure that. But at first it was a bit of a laugh, that's kind of funny, but slowly it dawned on me just how appropriate it was. Because if I'm being honest with myself, well, I am a lifetime membership of the Philip Stock Appreciation Society. (laughs) I'm the founding member, I'm the most active member, and I want everyone else to be a member too. See, we love when people recognise us, when people praise us. And so much of what we do, we do for the recognition of others. We want people to join our appreciation society. Every day we invite others to join. We want people to see how good we look. To be jealous of how we spend our weekends. We love it when people compliment our homes. We strive to be the best at our work. We rage when our boss doesn't give us recognition for our achievements. You see, deep down, we all want glory. We want people to acknowledge us, to appreciate us, to recognise us. And the problem with that is that it claims for ourselves something that God says belongs to to him. Human pride leads us to crave the praise and glory and honour 
that should be directed towards the God who made us and who deserves all the credit for our achievements. Friends, the pride of the Babylonians led them to seek a name for themselves. But it wasn't just God's glory that they wanted. No, no, no. They wanted everything. Because the tower that the people seek to build is not just a tall tower. It's a tower that reaches to the heavens. A tower that seeks to bridge the divide between heaven and earth. Genesis has showed us that there is a clear divide between heaven where God is and earth where we are. God is not one of us. He's not like us. He is God. Only he is God. And it's not our job to try to be God, to try to go where only God can go. Building a tower to the heavens is not just proud. It's treasonous. It's an invasion of God's space. It's an attack on God's rule. Like the rioters who stormed the US Capitol building earlier this year, invading God's seat of power is an attempt at stealing power from the established authority. Friends, just as Eve reached out to take for herself what belonged to God, the right to decide what is right and wrong, the residents of Babel here are attempting to reach out to take from God something that belongs to him. His glory and his authority. They want to be God. They want to live without God. Their pride leads them to make themselves God. Friends, the nations in Genesis 11 are united, but they're united against God. They're united in their attempt to overthrow God's power, to steal God's glory, to occupy his seat of power, and God doesn't let it continue. In verse 5, we see God's response, and the author has some fun at the tower builder's expense. Because to add to the fact that the people who want to make a name for themselves actually go unnamed in this story, they want to make a name and we don't even know their names. Well, to add to that, in verse 5, when God wants to inspect this tower that will apparently reach all the way to heaven, he has to stoop right down. It's almost like God is mocking their efforts. Let's see this huge tower you've built. Where is it? Uh Oh, It's right down there. God comes down to see the tower. And after inspecting the work, he decides to intervene. To these selfish people who only ever think about us, let us, we want this for ourselves, God says, come, let us. In verse 7. To a united people, God brings division. To people of one language, he mixes them up so that they will hear only babble. To rebellious people, determined to settle, God scatters them. See, these these people are mixed up. They've got it wrong. They are living with the tables turned. They've tried to remove God and make themselves God. And so God mixes them up. 
He enforces his will over theirs. He restrains their rebellion. But there's something that's missing in this story. Because if you've been reading Genesis, you kind of will have noticed a bit of a pattern that happens again and again and again. Human sin, God judges. He restrains his judgment and preserves some in his judgment. And then he gives some hope for the future. That that pattern happens again and again. In the garden, Adam and Eve sin. God announces his judgment, but he preserves. He allows Adam and Eve to continue to live and he even clothes them. And then he gives them a note of future hope. He promises the serpent crusher who will overcome the curse. In the flood, humans sin. God pronounces his judgment. He preserves some. He preserves Noah and his family on the ark. And he gives a note of future hope. He makes a covenant to never again destroy the earth with a flood. At Babel, humans sin. God judges. He preserves. He allows them to continue living. But where's the hope? What is the hope for humans united against God? He judges with disunity, but there there is no hope. But if you keep reading in chapter 11, well, we get another genealogy. Again, a a repeat, actually, of the first genealogy in chapter 10. It goes from Shem all the way down to Abram. And it's here that we see the hope of Genesis 11. Because there are humans united against God. But as we trace that story through, as we follow the line from Shem down to Abram, and as we flick into chapter 12, which we're not actually going to look into now, God promises to unite these people who are united against him again. He promises to reunite the nations. Through Abram, God promises that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God enacts his promise to bring unity to humanity. But it's unity on his terms. And as we follow those promises through, we come to the great conclusion, the fulfillment of those promises. When the Lord Jesus comes and calls people from every tribe and nation and language, the results of the Babel curse, where he invites them and unites them back to himself. Well, friends, what do we learn from this story? So remember, at first glance, the Tower of Babel seems fairly innocent. There's no violence, there's no drugs, there's no sex, nothing illegal, nothing dangerous, nothing that oppresses or mistreats or neglects other people. It's difficult to imagine that God could have had a problem with people working together to build a city. But what we've seen is that hidden beneath something that even looks good and worthy of celebration, beneath that lurks pride and selfish hearts. Hearts which want to rob God of his glory and overthrow his rule. And so this morning I want to challenge you, is that your heart? Because friends, what I hope you to, well, what I want you to see this morning is that 
Opposing God is not just breaking rules. Opposing God is not just violence and drugs and hurting others. Opposing God is not those nasty things that we look out and see in the world. It's so easy for us to convince ourselves that we're actually good people. But it's when we look at the state of our hearts, it's when we see the pride and the selfishness that lurks there, it's there that we see our own opposition to God. So are your thoughts only ever concerned with what you want so that you pay little attention to what God wants? Do you crave the recognition and praise of others so that you can claim for yourself what rightfully belongs to God? Well, friends, when we get to Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is refer- uh, addressing a crowd of people in Athens and he refers to this part of the Bible. Here's what he says. Acts chapter 17, he says, From one man, he, that is God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he is not far from any of us. From one man, Noah, God made all the nations that we read about in Genesis 10. He made them to inhabit the whole earth. He marked out when and where they should live. My friends, he did all this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Well, the people of Babel did not do that, did they? See, instead of seeking him and reaching out and finding God, they reached out to take from God what belonged to him. They were too concerned with themselves to notice the glory of the sovereign God who created them. And so, friends, this morning, I want you to see that God wants you to know him. What Paul says to the Athenians in Acts 17 shows us that God has put you here. He has marked out when you live and where you live so that you might seek him. He put you here For that purpose, so that you might find him, so that you might reach out for him and find in him the joy and peace and comfort and security and meaning and glory that can only be found in him. And friends, you won't find that by living for yourself. You won't find that by prioritizing your own desires and feeding your own pride. You'll find it by humbling yourself. You'll find it by denying yourself. You'll find it by admitting to yourself that you're not good and confessing to God that you're selfish and greedy and proud. And friends, you'll find it by humbly accepting the gift of the one who brings unity to all the nations and following him. Friends, will you bow your knee before Jesus? Let's pray. 
Our Lord God, the story of Babel reminds us that we are selfish and proud people. And we see in it how easy it is for us to live in opposition to you. To live as if we are our own gods and to overthrow your rule. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that in our own lives. Help us to see where we might be rejecting your good rule, robbing you of your glory by elevating ourselves to your position. Lord, help us repent of that. And Lord, would you humble us and help us to submit to your king, your ruler, the one who deserves all glory and honour and praise. And the one who will ultimately unite your people to yourself. Lord, would you help us deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus today, tomorrow and every day that you give us. For our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen.